Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. You know, a lot of people have long careers. You know, they're in the rat race, wearing a suit and a tie, and it's all tight on your neck. Um, and they think and they dream about traveling the world or sailing or, you know, going from South America to North America to Canada to travel. And they never do it. They just sit there and think and think and think. Well, not John and Bronwyn Virkin. They used property pretty quickly within a couple of years to fund um sailing all over the world and managing their business for 12 months without setting foot in the UK where their portfolio is based. I mean, you know, you know, you get those pictures of people, you know, in Bali with their laptops up on the pool and they're working and it's just like they're not. But, you know, they actually managed to do this for a whole year um, and they did it through property. They started off with some HMOs. They sold them, did a block of flat conversion with the lease option, which they sold off to someone else, did some title splitting, some interesting sales. Now they're looking at kind of million pound developments. Um, it's all going pretty, pretty quick. But even better. They raised two million pounds of JV angel finance in their first two years. That's one million pounds a year. This is a lot of money. And they talk in a good amount of detail of how to find and treat investors. They start talking about that about 39 minutes in, if you did just want to skip to that. But their story beforehand is so, so interesting. Um, and there's lots of little nuggets and information that they share with us. So here we go. Bronman and John, welcome to the Tesh Talks podcast. Your story is really interesting and I think it'll appeal to a lot of people because you both had, you know, quite, well, to me anyway, fairly long careers. You were in, I guess, what you could call a rat race. Um, and then you did what a lot of people think about and talk about, but you actually went and did it. Um, and you did it kind of, you know, in my opinion, quite quickly um, from yeah. kind of leaving your job. So I think a lot of people are going to um, sort of resonate with this story and, and kind of draw parallels to their own life. So... Before you travelled the world and became, you know, property extraordinaires, what, what, you know, what were you both doing before that? So I'd had a fairly eclectic career, but ended up working in IT. Uh, so for the last few years before giving it up, I was working for an IT consultancy in London, uh, a solution architect for anybody who knows what one of those is so i would as a, a an it systems designer i suppose in, at a high level let's move on <laughs> um, but, uh, but but yeah so so the, the important thing for me there though was the fact that we were living in south hampshire i was working in london uh commuting on a daily basis pretty much uh two hours there two hours back again so um so although i did actually enjoy the work it was not a lifestyle that I wanted. And I, I'd done 21 years in banking, which sounds such a long time. I actually quite enjoyed my job, um, but I didn't enjoy the commuting. Um, I, I escaped and worked a little bit in the NHS thinking, oh, that might be an easier type of role. But I ended up commuting to the Isle of Wight. So it um, just shows you that <laughs> you can't necessarily escape the rat race. Um, but we, yeah, we were, 
we were just not seeing each other, the family, the children, our parents. It was, you know, it's, it, it was the norm for a lot of people. It was. And it was classic kind of rat race type stuff that we both had good jobs, well-paid jobs, but it comes at a cost. The cost being that we didn't have the time to live the life that we wanted to live. Mm. And so obviously you had these feelings about, you know, like you said, not living the life you wanted to live. What then, what was that moment or book or program or something that triggered you to say, actually, you know, financial freedom is definitely a real thing. We can do it and let's do it in property. Yeah. It's a bit of a lucky or stroke of luck in many ways. So working, putting working in banking, I, I spent some time in the finance industry as well. So 2013, so post the crash, we were looking at the bank shares that we had that were had lost 90% of their value and had stopped paying any dividend. We were looking at money in ISO accounts that was earning half a percent per year and, and devaluing day by day and thinking, well, that's really not a very sensible thing to be doing with money. So... Not quite on a whim, but we thought, well, let's look at buying a property, an investment property uh, to rent out because, hey, you know what? We might get five, six, seven percent return on our money rather than half a percent in a bank and so on. Mm. So we went out and had a look at the market and were persuaded to buy, buy a flat in Winchester. Um, and we thought we were doing really well because we were going to be getting seven percent return on the money that we, we, were, we would be investing. Yeah. Um, Bronwyn then did what Bronwyn does when faced with something new. She buys some books. Well, you know, it's important. I think my whole career has been about learning properly and, and getting a really good education so that you you know and understand the risks. Um, so having bought the flat and then being told by the agent, of course, you know, oh, I can rent it for you tomorrow, we suddenly became landlords and we didn't really know much about it. So I, I, I went online, bought a couple of bestsellers, uh, one of which was Property Magic by Simon Zucci. So we started reading that and didn't believe that it could possibly work in the south um, of England. So we're based in Hampshire. Um, and then, yeah, after that, we we followed that up and went to one of the property investors That's network right. meetings, um, and then and then got a bit of an education with uh, with Simon Zucci. Wow! And how? Because you know, a lot of people they say to me, "Oh, Ted, you know, which is the best education course to go on?" What do people say? And it's quite tricky for me because I've only ever done one, and I've only ever seen others. Like how how pivotal. And, and tell me more about the course with Simon Zucci and, and how much of an effect it had on where you are today. Well, it's interesting because I get asked this a lot um, because, you know, you can spend a massive amount on your education. Um, and I think you've really got to think carefully because you can spend all that money and still not achieve. It's, it's really down to um, the way you like to learn and knowing and trusting somebody that is already doing this and is successful. Um, I, I did look at other courses. I did talk to other people. I went to a free day thing, you know, where they, they ask you to run to the back of the room. Um, my goodness me, I walked out of that thinking I would never learn with this person. It's not my values. So you've got to learn with somebody where you can relate to them. They've got similar values to you. 
And also it's within your budget and your um, skill set, I think. You know, I like to learn face to face. Some people prefer to read books and actually, you know, watch videos. So you've really got to think carefully um, how you how you're best, you know, to learn from. Um, and for us, Simon Zucci's course and his program um, seemed to suit not only our learning styles, but the time that we had available. So it was one weekend a month and then coaching online over the phone. So it suited us and our styles. Mm. And then so you bought that first flat in Winchester. You then kind of got educated and then kind of went back into it. What what was your kind of, I guess, first real purchase after the education? Like, talk me through what it was, where it was, and what the figures were. Yes, so our first purchase of that was an HMO. So we'd worked out, as a lot of people do, that if we wanted to change our lives around, change how we lived, then cash flow was very, very important to us. Uh, if we were going to be having a hope to replace our corporate income with property income, then we knew that what we buy would need to be high cash flowing. So HMOs were the sensible strategy at the time. Uh, and not knowing anything about HMOs at that point or knowing what we've been taught, but nothing firsthand, we actually bought an existing HMO from a landlord uh, who was wanting to retire. So from our point of view, it had the advantage that Essentially, we were buying a house that was already a house. We'd done that before. That wasn't a problem. It was already set up with fire doors with all the other bits and pieces it needed. Uh, it already had a license. We obviously had to get that transferred, but it had had license, had planning, had everything that it needed. So it was an easy entree into HMO ownership and then into HMO management and so on. So we spent about 170000 on the property, um, it was actually, it wasn't a big cash earner in terms of the room rates weren't as high as we can get, and the rooms weren't particularly big. Um, but we were getting 2800 a month gross income from that. So on a £170,000 house, that's actually a, a very good return on your investment. This is in Southampton. So we started off um, really focusing on our our strategy area and Southampton being a, a pretty large city, uh, quite a high demand. Uh, we were really focusing on um, young professionals as our sort of multi-let strategy. Mm. I mean, how did you get a, a pre-made HMO for that cheap in in southampton like did did he really just want to get rid of it and you helped him out or like what, what was the situation there i think he went to an agent who didn't really understand what hmos were and what what they were about and didn't understand sort of the the commercial valuation of hmos so essentially we bought a house as essentially it's a three-bed house there was being one as a five-bed HMO with all the bits and with, with everything it needed. But we bought it for the price of a three-bed house already made. Um, I guess that was the vendor's lack of knowledge, lack of expertise. And the um, agents, actually. Um, and the agents, yeah. You know, I think uh, a lot of our success in some of our deals was finding the right agents to work with that you could really get to know. But this particular agent, I know we'd, I'd seen probably three or four properties with this young chap, 
um, we were able to um, educate him in a way because I said, look, this one's not quite right. I need I need a second reception room. And actually that bathroom off the kitchen, you know, I'm li- really looking for this type of property. So, you know, go away, have a look and come back to me. And this one, he phoned me up. It's so funny. He phoned me up on the Tuesday, I think. And he said, oh, I found the one I think is just right for you. Um, we've got an open day on Saturday. Do you want to come and view it? So um, I'd learned really well with uh, Simon Zucci and uh, the key is never to go to an open day because it's too late at that point. You want to be able to negotiate with the owner before that point, because otherwise you've got that frenzy of people wanting to make offers and it pushes the price up. So I said to the agent, um, I can't make Saturday, but I, we're actually both free tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, because my husband, you know, I, I think I was making this up, but he's got a meeting locally. So why don't we come and see it tomorrow? Can you arrange for the owner to be there? Um, so he he said, oh, I'm sure I can sort that out for you because he was so keen to um, to sell this to me because we built that rapport up. And when we went to view it, the owner was there and we were able, having done our sort of research online, we were able to make an offer there and then. Um, subject to them taking it off the market. So that was the good education we'd had really, was really understanding how do estate agents work and how do we get in front of the actual owner. Wow, I mean, that's that's a really interesting tip because I guess most people were naturally, people would say, okay, open day, yep, cool, see you there. And then like you said, it'll be that frenzy, but you know, you just sort of blew that out the water and said no you know we, we need to see it tomorrow but I guess you did it in such a way that wasn't forceful or wasn't rude it was just literally like oh we're free tomorrow can we just see it and then it worked out and you got a deal like I think it's the little things like that you know as much as there's sort of you know property investment is all out there all the information education is there it's the little things like that the kind of guts to just do that that will get people deals um that people don't do or talk about right um I love that. So just to quickly go back to your, your first HMO, what's the profit on that a month after the 2.8 gross, roughly? 800 to 900 a month. And I think, you know, because it was only five bedrooms um, and all our properties at this stage, we were we were getting mortgages on. So we were quite highly geared. We paid the 25% deposit. So we put our own money into this particular one. Um, we remortgaged our house, by the way. So, uh, you know, I know you're going to talk about finance, but we remortgaged our own home to release equity so that we could put deposits down on these sorts of properties. So, yeah, about 800 a month. Yeah, it, it was. It's, it's 800 a month, which was about a 20% return on capital. Okay, fantastic. And then what's your journey been like since then? Talk me through your kind of properties and what your portfolio looks like now. So we've... Um, been one of the things we haven't done is followed the rule of following one strategy, one course until successful. We've been a little bit more haphazard in our investing. Uh, so we we did end we've ended up with at one point that we had seven HMOs. Um, we then kind of fell into guest houses, which have been very good for us. Um, we've also done a couple of developments as well. Uh, so we we haven't become what, you, what we might call traditional HMO landlords with an ever-increasing portfolio of HMOs. 
So we had four in Portsmouth and actually, no, we had four in Portsmouth, four in Southampton. So we had eight, eight HMOs. Um, so that, that was our, our basic entry and, and, and what we what we've initially started building up. Um, after kind of after our year, after our mastermind year with Simon Zucci, we looked at ourselves and said, well, actually, it's all very well doing 200, 250,000 pound houses and so on. But if you're putting all the effort in, maybe it's worthwhile actually expanding that and trying to do bigger deals. So one of the challenges we set ourselves for that second year was to do just that, to do bigger deals, to try and find things where the amount of effort wouldn't be hugely more. But if you're buying something 10 times the value, it's going to give you 10 times the, the return. It's not 10 times the effort. So therefore, you can actually accelerate your your development, your business, and so on, uh, in a way which kind of takes more guts. Don't get me wrong. When you're suddenly buying sort of a million pound properties as opposed to two hundred fifty thousand pound properties, it's more nerve wracking. Yeah. But if you've got the education, the knowledge, and skills, then actually you can do it. Yeah, and I think you know. Okay, we focused on HMOs to replace our income. So in the after the first year, John gave up his job. Um, I carried on, went down to three days a week. But in in that in that period, being able to view different types of properties with different type dif- different opportunities, I suppose. Um, one of the big clinches for us, one of the deals that made a massive difference in our first year, was finding a property that the agent took me to because he said, I don't know what how to market this property. <laughs> and I said to him, if you, if you find a property that, you know, you want us to have a look at that's a bit different, a bit unusual, then, you know, call me up. And that's exactly what he did. He said, I don't know how to market this. It was a, it was a big house, really, really old, had hardly any work done to it. But at one end, the previous owners had started to build a couple of flats and convert um, in, into two flats, but he hadn't finished. And then the rest of the house had just been rented out and it had this huge garden. So he took me to see it. And um, long story short, we actually bought it um, and developed it into six flats um, and created six leases, owned the freehold. We then sold the freehold later and then we did an option on the garden. So you start to see that education that we had was was absolutely vital because we could see the potential in that and we weren't scared of doing you know freehold to leasehold type of deals because we learned we you know we were working with people who had got that sort of knowledge that was a clincher for us because that made a huge difference in um working with investors um and finding private finance for that type of of deal and that gave us the confidence really to to look at you know bigger deals um, so million pound type of deals rather than the the standard house conversion that we were doing before. Wow. So am I right in saying there was sort of an old house, quite quite big, you know, wasn't really sure what it was, started building flats, you bought it, got planning permission, made six flats, title split them all, sold off the freehold, and then you had an option on the garden. Did you take an option on the garden or give no, an we, option? We, we, we gave an option on the garden. Um at the time, we thought, well, shall we go for planning in the, in the garden or, or 
actually, do we want to focus on other things and just sell the option to somebody else? So we ended up selling the option to somebody else who had relationships with planners, knew more about that whole process than we did. Uh, so is it, we weren't really happy to, we didn't, didn't want to learn that part of the overall property world, if you like, at that particular point. So we just uh, uh, talked talk, 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 talk to an agent who we, we happened to know who said, yes, I can find somebody and, uh, and set up a very nice option deal. Mm, interesting. And then what, what were the kind of figures on this um, conversion? Oh well, you know that's a that's a whole that's a whole hours podcast itself. <laughs> um, the beauty again, and I think the lessons learned for the, for the listeners is um, is really getting a, a really good network and going along to property events and getting to know people who have got different skill sets and different knowledge. So we um, we actually worked with a couple of people that we've met at a pin meeting who um, were doing. Um, conversions themselves in their day-to-day business in a corporate business and they wanted to start out independently so we said to them well look if you want to work with us this is a chance for them to prove to themselves that they could do this um, independently and and set up their own business so it's all about collaboration and building trust with people that you you know um, can actually make things work for you but it, you know, it feels risky. But for us, it was it was a project, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. I, and the the overall numbers we bought the bought the plot for three hundred fifty thousand, um, which and the place was completely unmortgageable, so that had to be a cash purchase. So we had to find investors uh, to to put the money up for that. We spent about two hundred thousand on. The, um, the the conversion the, the the redevelopment of the of the block. Yeah. Um, so that was about five hundred fifty thousand pounds total spend, and the sale of the six flats was six hundred eighty thousand. So it's about one hundred thirty mm-hmm. hundred twenty thousand pound um, profit on that point of from that point of view. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that profit did go back to the investors who'd had risked a lot with us so essentially this was our first adventure into this type of, of redevelopment mm-hmm. so we were very lucky with finding people who lucky no lucky is the wrong word <laughs> i was um, going to correct I, you <laughs> I, I mean i it was, it was sort of hard work and, and there's an element of luck but actually you make your own luck yeah. and so we found people who were willing to work with us and and um on the whole project so sure, they, they, they took the large share of the profits, but actually that was fine by us because without them, we'd have had nothing, we wouldn't have been able to do anything anyway. Hmm. Uh, and, th- and then there was the, um, uh, the, the, the sale of the, of, the, of the garden as well, yeah. which was planned um, where the option was, I can't remember what the option numbers were now. Yeah. The, the other thing is we we actually kept one of the flats too, so we still we're renting it single letting. So it was the it was the show flat that we had, um, two bedroom um, flat. So we're still renting that now. Um, and what yeah. made you what made you sell most of them and not refinance not not like title split refinance pay your investors back and keep the rental and then maybe have a little bit of profit from the refinance. 
that's so the, the main reason there was because um, that way we'd, we'd still had the profit in the building, if you like. And the investors actually wanted their profit and cash out. Yeah. So there was the, the by refinancing it, we wouldn't have been able to give the investors their their agreed share of of, of the of the value. So we had to sell them to to satisfy um, that, that 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 part of the deal, if you like. Mm, okay, I see. And I'm gonna I'm gonna delve into your relationships with investors in a bit. But before that, you mentioned you're kind of now also looking at, or you're not afraid to look at, you know, million pound developments or properties. Mm. What you know, what is what's next in the pipeline for you both? I mean, are you going to building from land next? Are you going to you know what, what's next in terms of your strategy of sorts? Yeah, good question. Um, well, we went we went into um, larger deals and we looked at a, a very large property of twenty six bedrooms, for example. We were going to convert it to flats and realised that we could actually rent the rooms individually on a short term basis. So we sort of fell into um, a guest house bed and breakfast type of um, strategy, and we'll, uh, we, we work with local authorities on that. So that that was a, the next stepping stone. Um, and that's that's very profitable and actually is there's a really strong market for people who, who really do need good quality accommodation. So we do that in Southampton now. We've got three properties that we, we um, have on a sort of guest house type of arrangement. And, and then we've just bought, well, not just, <laughs> so we've just got planning permission on a site in Andover. So this was brought to us by... Um, a couple, another couple who wanted to learn with us. Um, it's been a couple of years in the planning um, pipeline, and we heard just before Christmas we got planning. So, so that's a big thing for us: is going into sort of small developments to re- raise capital so that we can pay down some of some of the debt on some of the other properties. Yeah. So, so this is a deal where I mean, we bought the property. At a good price, but with, as, as an unconditional offer without planning, in the confidence that we would be able to get planning. Uh, it's been a longer road than we would have hoped to get planning, but we were down, we, we're moving down that road. We've got the first stage planning, which is great. Yeah. So for that first stage, um, the build out is probably going to be about one and a half million, and then there's the other half of the plot that will still need to be, be dealt with at some point in, in whatever we manage to, uh, to, to get agreed for that. So, and we're talking now of maybe a three million pound site in in total GDV. So that's a big change from yeah buying, buying a house for two hundred thousand three years. So it's, it's it's been a big change. It's been a basic learning curve. But I guess one of the things we like is is that learning that whole new, the the adventure of doing new things. Necessarily something I'd suggest to everybody else. You've got to be the right type of person to um to be able to carry it out. Uh, but it's worked for us. Wow, and you know, three years is it, it probably feels like a long time, but really it's not when you compare it to any job. You know, in three years you would never be given this much responsibility, accountability, make this much money, have this much fun. So it's it's amazing what like humans what we can achieve. You know, on our own sort of accord in our own businesses and and especially in property like but you know am i right in saying that on the mastermind you 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 were t- 
top five or you won an award? So, yes, so, so for the for our, our course on the Mastermind for that year, we were one of the, the top five performers in, in our course. Um, so we were, we were very happy with that. A lot of that was yeah, because of the um, that, that six flat development project gave it, which we which we did during that first real year of learning uh, was such an opportunity we couldn't not do it. Um, took us away from our core strategy of HMOs, but boosted our learning, boosted our confidence, and everything else to allow us to go on to do, to do other things. So. Yeah. So Mastermind Year was 2014. We started in the January and finished in the in the November, I think it was. Um, so so that was that was our our real first year. So I guess it's four years since then. I I, I tend to forget about the last year because that was a bit of a blur. <laughs> <laughs> and then what you know, working in a couple must have its ups and downs. Tell me more about how you both sort of fit together to make you know. Um, the best kind of combination there is to, to kind of do property. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, the wealth dynamics, um, understanding your core strengths is, was a big part of it because there are always things in a couple that you go, well, why do you do things like that? That's really annoying me. I, you know, I do it like this, you know, and, and, and that's normal. But when you're in business together, you've really got to understand why that somebody looks at it in a different way, but also to exploit that. So I, you know, we knew that I, I would be good at going and, and negotiating and um, talking to estate agents. It's not something John was so comfortable with, and I, I enjoyed it. Um, whereas, you know, the deal analysis and looking at the spreadsheets and setting up spreadsheets that's really going to work for us is, again, is not my <laughs> my skill set and. And John would uh, might argue that it isn't perfect I, I, for you, but you I, were much I'm, better at it. Yeah. So, 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 my, yeah. So, a real division of of what we're good at. So, from Bronner's point of view, yes, dealing with the agents, negotiating the deal, networking, talking to people, finding investors, and so on. Stuff that I'm more introvert. I don't. I'm not so happy in those areas. Whereas. What I really brought was the analysis of a deal, trying to figure out what we could do with it, and then dealing with the the lawyers, the um, the the mortgage companies, the finance companies, whoever it is, all that kind of stuff, and being able to ask them the right questions and make sure that, that it worked. Yeah. Yeah. As I think we said earlier, the, the the timing bit, so the project management bit, is not a strength of ours. So wherever possible, we always work with somebody else who does that more naturally and far better than we would. And one of the strengths I think we've developed as a couple is really understanding what each of us is good at and really brings to the business and then finding other people to do everything else if we can. So this, I, I kind of joke about when, when I talk to people and say, well, in business, we try and do as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Because actually, that was the whole point. The whole point wasn't to start up a new business to give us a, well, if you're running your own business, it's not a nine to five anymore. It's a when you wake up to when you go to go to bed seven days a week. And there were times when we were in the, in the thick of it, that Sunday morning, we wake up in bed. And our first conversations are, what are we going to be doing about this? Oh, have you, talk, have you talked about this? And it's, it's straight into the business talk. 
first thing on a Sunday morning before we've even got out of bed, <laughs> which which is a downside. But we had to go through that to get to where we are now, which is where we can relax and there's still lots to do, but actually it's no longer the pressure cooker that it was those first three years. Mm. And one of our mantras right from the start was was not to replace our corporate job with another job because um, you know we wanted a bit more freedom. We wanted time to have adventures and to travel particularly, time with the family. So we, you know, we were very careful um, that when we did, you know, create a, a property deal, we were going, right, who's going to manage this? Who's going to manage that HMO? Who's going to be the right person to make sure that we get the return on investment? So we always factored in using other people to to manage our properties. And then now we've gone in for guest houses. Again, we have other people that live in other people that manage the people so that we're not having to be, you know, in a particular place the whole time and get, you know, and be worried about it and actually replacing our job with another job. Mm, absolutely. So you, you know, a lot of people will replace their job with another job without kind of realizing it and, and, you know, leveraging and outsourcing can reduce your profits a bit, but you know, it reduces your, your monetary profits, but your time and freedom profits are, are greatly increased. And that's obviously what you've done. And I think it's fantastic. You've planned it from the beginning because it's easy to lose track and just get straight into it. Um, yeah. and, and so there's an element of, if we had to do that at the beginning, we were both still in, in full-time jobs when we started yeah. and both were on commutes. So there was actually no way we could have managed our own HMOs whilst commuting, us commuting to London, Ronald's commuting to the Isle of Wight. So there's an element of fate forced us, but actually it was also our plan. We never wanted to be doing that, never wanted to be de de um, dealing with all that administrative burden. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, on that point of freedom, tell, you know, so property gave you a lot of freedom. And what did you both do? You know, tra traveling around the world. T tell me more about that. So many years ago, I'd had this kind of idea that it'd be lovely to sail across an ocean. And I liked sailing and I'd sailed around the coast of Scotland a bit, but never more than maybe a dozen miles away from the land. So the thought of actually sailing all the way across an ocean sounded like a, a huge adventure to do. Um, we met... Well, the girlfriend of one of our managers actually was doing a couple of legs of the Cliff Around the World race in the uh, 14, 15, 15, 16, 15, 16 race. 16. And um, when I found out about that, we got together, we were chatting, and I thought, actually, you know what? With the property journey, the fact that we no longer have corporate jobs that mean we've got to be, well, we've got 25 days holiday or something. We can make time for me to do something like that. And somehow this snowballed from just doing a leg or two to, well, actually, why not do the whole thing? Why not go all the way around the world? That was my, that was my suggestion, it John, was, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> and it was a case of, I, and I was, I was trying to figure out which leg or legs I should do. And one says, well, why don't you do it all? And I think, well, two things. One is the time and the other is the cost because it's not cheap and the whole race takes 11 months. Yeah. But then we're thinking about it. Bronwyn came up, kept on saying, well, look, you know, in life, you always regret far more the things you don't do than the things you do do. Yeah. 
So if you want to do this, go and do it. We will f somehow find a way to afford it and we will make it, make, make it work somehow. We had enough time to plan. So we had about a year, didn't we? Mm -hmm. um, and again, part of our whole process that we, we, we used to go through every year was to plan what are our goals this year? And I know something that Simon Zucci got us to do very early on was to set a dream board. You know, what are the things that you're going to do in the future that you can sort of look at and think, wow, I'm going to do that one day. And I thought, well, this is just another one of those. This is really, you know, this is a dream that not many people ever get to do in their whole lives. Yes, it costs £50,000. But again, for us at that point, £50,000 to raise in 12 months wasn't massive. You know, we'd done it before. Um, but this time, this was for us personally, um, and we weren't going to do it for charity, you know, in terms of raising it for charity. We wanted to raise our own money for charity. So this was completely independent. So for us, it's just another, it was a goal, but it, for me, it was the, the dream board stuff. Um, and yes, I encouraged him to want to do all of it. 11 months. Um, well, in, in the end, it was almost 12 months because you, you delivered the boat yep. um, yeah. to Liverpool. Um, but people say to me, why on earth did you encourage him to go around the world when, you know, you were left then, you know, to your, to run the business yourself? But that was never the plan. <laughs> um, the plan was I could go and see him in various ports and I would find my own adventures. And in the end, that's what I did, too. So, yeah, yeah. I did all sorts of other things along the way and gave back and volunteered and. Uh, did some amazing things and neither of us touched you know the UK for that whole period of time so it, it was a great way of proving to ourselves ourselves that we could actually manage the business from wherever in the world we were providing we had an internet connection and that's kind of the way it worked out providing we had a decent internet connection so that we could make Skype calls to managers we could make Skype calls to our solicitor, to our finance broker, wherever it was, um, then actually, yes, we can still manage, manage the, um, the business and be traveling around the world having fantastic adventures. And it's funny because at the beginning of the year, I'd said, fine, we need to sort ourselves out so that by August, when I leave, so no new deals, nothing new, we need to consolidate, systemize and get everything sorted out so that we can leave the business or when we can leave England, knowing the business is in, in the best shape it can be so that we can manage it while away. Uh, I'm not sure any of those actually quite turned out as planned, however. Hmm. So am I right in saying that property allowed you to take this much time away from, you know, a job, a business Absolutely. to just explore your life? Absolutely. Yeah. And it allowed us to A, afford it and B, take the time out to, to do that. And we proved to ourselves that we could. Not only that, we could also increase the business. We could be building the business whilst we weren't still in the country. Mm. So we actually carried out, we, we did a new deal, much, much, much to my disgust at the beginning, thinking, no, we can't do another deal, but we did. Full credit to Bonner, and she was the main driver there. Um, so we, we, we leased another guest house while we were away during the year to increase um, our guest house portfolio from two to three. Hmm. And I mean, I know you said some things didn't always go to plan when it came to managing your business from afar, but was it manageable or was it quite stressful and kind of weird not physically being there and seeing these buildings? 
Well, the the deal that we actually did, I had seen it. Um, so John had left. Um, I had what well, six weeks, probably you no know, four yeah. or five weeks from when he left on the first leg of of the race from Liverpool to Uruguay. Um, and and I during that time, I'd already seen the property once. I went back and met the owner, and with with our key manager was able to to start that process. And then the rest of it I did over the phone. Um, in fact, the um, the owner didn't even know I was going away because I thought that might spook him a bit. So I didn't tell him. Um, I just said to him, oh, I can't make the meeting in person, but my manager will just dial me up on the phone. So I was making, I was having these phone calls from Uruguay at the time. And the the the, the vendor didn't even know I was out of the UK. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a lease option that one so we've done a purchase lease option it was a lease yeah it was a lease um but so i had seen the property at least um but it was the negotiation and then it was the solicitors back and forth so it did take a little while but we were able to build the trust with the guy before i left and then continue that over the phone Mm -hmm. okay and you know everything we've said so far all the freedom all the time all the traveling costs money and so does buying all the properties that have let you do and live this lifestyle right so and a question that a lot of property investors new experienced you know middle experience whatever they always ask and wonder you know where did you get your private finance from like how so firstly how much did you have you raised to date if you can remember and like how have you got all of this because it sounds like a fair bit well, yeah, that was uh, one of the things we focused on right from day one, because um, the mantra that we were told was you're going to run out of money at some point. So why not start thinking about how you might raise funds apart from mortgages um, to to continue to build your portfolio? So we started very, very um, early on looking and talking to people about what it was we were aiming to achieve. Um, never ask for money directly, but actually build um, a rapport with either friends, family, people that you know that's got money sitting in a bank, not earning very much, um, and just start the conversations going. And then it's networking, networking in all the property meetings, but also any opportunity you've got to say to people, oh, you know, I'm I'm learning about property investing and this is what I'm doing. And if they're interested you you know you you make sure you get a chance to show them oh this is this is how it works this is the sort of returns that i'm getting and then i'd i'd be talking quite frequently around we're looking for investors for for our next deal this is what it look looks like um do you know anyone who might be interested and you know quite often they'd say well i might be <laughs> so um, yeah, so private finance for us, especially in that first year, I think we raised over half a million in the first 12 months. And then the following following, following year was about another one and a half, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Roughly, because we were doing bigger deals at that time. But once you've got one investor and they, you know, you've paid them back and then they say, well, I'm interested in the next deal or I'm thinking about, you know, I quite quite like to continue investing. And then they know somebody else who might be interested. So it can it can snowball. So, yeah. So. Like I say, so so the. 
the, the finance does recycle and you and the the confidence once you've done some deals and people have seen that it builds confidence in other people to invest where maybe they might not invest if, if you'd never done things before so certainly the early deals we probably gave away more profit than certainly more than we would nowadays because that's kind of the price you're paying to have those early investors they're trusting you more than people now need to try well that the perception i guess is there's a bigger risk if you've never done a deal before the first people are taking a bigger risk on you or with you than the people when it's your 10th 11th 12th deal so those early deals yeah they were quite expensive from our point of view whereas nowadays because we've got the track record because we've got the experience we can point to all the things we've done before we actually know the questions that investors do ask and we know we've got the answers backed up with experience to actually allay their fears it's it's kind of easier to find investors now um, and it, it like anything in life the more you do the easier it gets yeah and you know two million pounds over two years is you know is, is quite a bit of money um now i think a lot of people especially those who are listening or new in property investment are thinking oh my god that's so like unachievable it's so far away um but I think the, the interesting point you mentioned is, yeah, the first few deals, as much as you know, we want profit as the people kind of buying these properties and, and borrowing money, the cost of paying someone a higher interest rate or giving them more of the profit at the beginning is only a cost in, in money wise, because that, like you said, that mm. investor is going to be loyal to you. They're going to have friends. So, yeah, pay them whatever it takes. But realize that obviously the, the bigger picture is they're going to invest 10 times in you over the next few years. So like you know forget that little cost at the beginning but yeah. you know like you said you have a track record right now it, it's clear to see you know people will invest in you happy days but when you started and you kind of you know had those first few deals what did you do to get those investors on board apart from offering them an extra bit of profit what was there anything about yourselves or the way you marketed yourselves or anything that would help new investors get to your level i think it's a mixture of all those things part of it was or the, I suppose the most crucial thing is the deal. The deal has to be very visibly a good deal, a safe deal, where, with multiple exit option um, yeah. strategies so that you've got a plan A, plan B, plan C, so that whoever's putting the money in has the confidence that the deal is right. We then worked with the investors for the first couple of deals in terms of using them as as part of the management team for the project if you like so regular meetings a to give them an update but also to say we've got these questions and actually we're happy or more than happy we'd like you to contribute your thoughts because it's at the end of the day it's your money here as well do we go do this, go this way do we go that way so involving the, them that the, the whole involvement and in yeah. using their skills in the project as well it's being professional. I think if we, if I was to sort of put it in a nutshell, it's it's being professional, coming across um, as really knowing what you're doing and being able to present something in a really good way. So we had um, powerpoints, we had 
really structured way of of showing how the numbers worked um and in, yeah investor packs that that looked you know really really good um and then giving examples so even if it's your first deal as long as you've got an example maybe of somebody that's done one before and that you can say look here this is how it works um so that you build their trust and confidence in you um, and then communication, keeping um, com- keeping communication um, channels open and making sure that you answer their questions when they're sort of thinking of investing. But then once they've invested, you keep communicating with them about the progress, what's happening at the moment, and almost, you know, have that sort of weekly um, email conversation that says, this is where we're at at the moment. So you're you're always continually building trust. Mm, okay no i love those and then actually on the flip side of that you know a lot of people say if you've got a good deal the money will come and i hear a lot of people saying oh i've got i've got loads of deals but no investors and then people say i've got loads of investors but no deals how do you source your deals is it mainly through agents well the early days yes very much so um and i as i said i think i mentioned earlier that getting to know the agents was really critical for me because they were my eyes and ears. So I, you know, I got to know the independents mainly. Um, they were they were better. <laughs> they were they were more interested in in what we were doing, um, and I almost trained them up. So we so in Southampton that that worked quite well. But then we found that there was there was a lot of competition in Southampton. We weren't finding as many opportunities. So we we moved across to Portsmouth and found that in Portsmouth there were more opportunities at that time. So I think you've got to keep your eyes and ears open to the investing areas and regions, build a good rapport with the agents, but then make sure that you understand the situation of the vendor. And that's always a question I would ask. The agent got used to me asking that. So I'd say, yes, I am. it's interesting that it's just come on the market, but what's the situation of the vendor? Why do they need to sell? Are they motivated? So we we didn't tend to buy things that had you know gone through the traditional route. There usually was a problem. So I would uh, say to agents, if there's a problem with the property or the property falls through and there's an issue, contact us because we can act really quickly. We can get finance. We've dealt with you before. You know that we've got a track record. And so we did some properties with subsidence, didn't we? We had somebody that the deal had fallen through twice um the sale so we've stepped in but we could buy it cheaper because they were more motivated and we could act quickly so yeah lots of different tips there around um finding motivated sellers primarily yeah and mainly through agents yeah Mm, okay and then um builders that's another area that people struggle with whether they're experienced or whether they're new how do you find and maintain a good kind of build and refurb team well, yeah, networking I talked about earlier. Um, networking and asking people and going and seeing what other people are doing and getting to know, you know, who are they using. Um, and then, you know, it, once you find somebody that's good, you want to hang on to them. <laughs> but then sometimes they're not always great. So you've got to sort of test people out. Um, always use people that have been recommended to you. So, you know, I'm not going to go cold call people. I'm going to talk to other people who have used somebody. 
And then for us, it was making sure that you looked after them so that once you found a really good plumber or or somebody that does refurbs, generally, if he's got a team, that's what we ended up having, didn't we? We had Phil, yeah. who had a team of people. Um, but we would make sure that we paid him um, almost weekly so that he had that cash flow working. Um, we would we would listen to his needs and sometimes we would buy the the materials and then he, his team would come in and fit them. Um, so looking after the team is critical, but they're not always great. We have had some, some big mistakes. I think like everything, everyone knows, with builders, you get good ones, bad ones. Yeah. Good ones sometimes go bad for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, and so finding people, working with them to begin with, if you find somebody good, make sure you pay them quickly. Yeah. Because um, we we certainly had that with, with one of our builders that, we always paid him on time, which meant that when we suddenly had a need and said, can you do this for us quickly? He would sometimes drop somebody else and come to come to work with us because I said, oh, don't worry about them. They, they, they always take ages to pay me anyway. So he felt no compulsion in terms of giving them a decent service because they didn't pay him on time. That was interesting. And so, it? so that that really helped that relationship between us and the builder, yeah. because a lot of the builders do work sort of fairly hand to mouth in terms of the cash flow. So if you if you can work with them and help them help you, it works a lot better. Yeah, awesome. And you know what? This brings me to my last question before the quick fire round, which is: Is there an app? or resource or, or something, some bit of tech that you can't live without? Some bit of tech? <laughs> we struggled a bit on no, this one. Really. <laughs> I, I think because we outsource everything. Yeah. Um, we have our accounting package because it's a business and we need it. Yeah. Um, we use Zero. Does it need to be Zero? No, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't, I guess it does now because everything's in Zero and it'd be a, a real pain to move. Um, you need your core business management tools. Um, I don't know if there's a particular set that are best or not. Um, Laptop. <laughs> I think I'm. Five. For, 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 from, I was going to say, from our point of view, with our um, now it's like more itinerant lifestyle mm. and managing the world from wherever it is. It's a good laptop and a good good internet connection. Um, you've got to have that because that's how that's that's your prime management tool. Yeah, and uh, I but teach... there's, there's, there's no particular gizmo widget or anything that that really stands out. No, and I and I'm I'm coaching and teaching other people the basic steps to investing, and so for me, it really is the phone calls, the Skype, the um, the Zoom, uh, the the platforms, WhatsApp. Yeah, um, being able to to chat to people, um, and and it's got to be really clear and concise. Uh, that's that's been important, especially in the last last year and a half yeah communication oh, awesome cool well we've now reached the quick fire round so this is short snappy kind of one line answers so um what are your top three tips for people who are new in property investment yeah, top tips oh, top, top tips top, top yeah. tips so well for me it's um, um working with others um, valuing your skills but also understanding that rather than having to learn something that you're not actually very good at is to use experts and use other people so that will be critical um, 
do your due diligence. <laughs> yep, always do your due, due diligence. Doesn't matter what it is. Make sure you've checked and check the checkers if you can. Mm -hmm. And a good basic education is the third point is, um, you know, get, get a good education with somebody who is doing it themselves. So it doesn't purport to to know everything, but is doing it and somebody that you have checked and you, you can work with, yeah. you know, and trust. And we, we could never have done what we've done if we hadn't chose followed the, 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 the PIN education and gone all the way through with Mastermind and so on. Uh, that education was key. Awesome. And then what are the biggest three mistakes that you've made? Oh, I don't like talking about these. <laughs> but I, I think one of them is we have been too generous sometimes in our joint venture deals. Um, yes, in the early days, we had to give quite a lot away. And I think we gave away too much too long and we could possibly have accelerated a bit faster if we'd been slightly less generous, let me put it that way. Um, uh, I think we are, we're, we're very trusting and we are generous. And I think our, our values mean that, you know, we really do value our investors. Um, but I think if we wanted to go a bit quicker, we could have, could have, we could have gone a bit faster maybe and made, and made a little bit more earlier on. But I, I don't think that's too big a problem. Um, systemizing the business and, you know, being really in control during those first couple of years was difficult. Um, that's that's something we, we could have been better yeah. at. And it's a tricky one because to go heavily in systemization, you need to be sure that your business is working. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg. <laughs> Do you spend money systemizing the business before the business can really afford it? That's, that's kind of kind of yeah. tricky. Um, we should have done more than we have done, particularly the guest houses. Um, and it's one of our big focuses is to try and play catch up there and get the systems and, yeah. and control processes in place to make sure that we really have got a better handle on the business. Mm. Great. And then what are your sort of... I don't know, your top three or biggest three goals for the future? Right. Well, you know, we have, we've, it's been a very quick journey so far and, you know, four, four or five years, it's gone very fast. Um, we do need to reduce our debt. So because of that, that speed, we've, we've got a lot of mortgages. We've got a lot of debt. Um, it's all serviceable, of course, but it would be nice to reduce that in the future because who knows that interest rates will start to, tick up a bit i think so yeah and also i'm just reduce, reducing your leverage so finding more projects to return capital to reduce the overall debt is is the next sort of key business stage because then you've got a more sustainable business that is more is is a lower risk you're, you're more resilient to any changes in in the market and interest rates and so on yeah. so that that's a big big uh, key goal for us systemize our processes that, so that continues again that's making sure that we we can um continue continue doing some adventures and uh, maybe doing some more traveling and things and making sure that that we feel that the businesses can support that um and the third thing is is something we've been talking about for a little while now since the around the world since john circumnavigated the world um is writing a book so at least one maybe two books 
Uh, that's out of our comfort zone, but is an absolute must on my book. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we we've got to write that. We've got a great story to tell in all sorts of ways, not just the the property journey, but also our our year away in terms of what we did, how we did it. Um, and we've got to figure out how we're going to structure that book or books. But yeah, that's uh, that's something we we definitely want to be doing. Amazing, I love it. And I really liked your first goal actually about reducing the kind of leverage because. You don't hear a lot of property investors kind of talk about that. You hear more of like, oh, you know, we can leverage. We're going to leverage. Can I get 80? Can I get 85% LTV? I'll take it all. But what you don't hear is the side which you just mentioned, which is the kind of actually that's fantastic at the start. But, you know, who knows what's happening in the world and the economy? Let's kind of keep it sustainable. So I love that. And that in itself is is a big golden nugget for anyone listening who's in a you know in a similar stage to you of their property journey but yeah look i'm i'm so looking forward to this book you you know your property journey alone was so interesting so i'm uh i'm keen to see what else you got up to as you traveled the world but john bronman thank you so much for for coming on the show it's it's been so interesting and i know you're going to help a lot of people with this it's been real real pleasure ted yeah, it's great. It's great to be on. And uh, to anyone listening, you know, it's take action. Start somewhere. Take a few steps forward. Book a call with me. Come and have a chat with me. I'm more than happy to talk to somebody about different ways of learning, where to start. Uh, my One of my big goals is to inspire other people to get going. Because if we'd started this like 30 years ago, we'd be in a very different situation. So anyone listening wants to learn, I've got some top tips. Happy for you to share those um and yeah more than happy to have a chat with people um, about where to start perfect take action everyone if you like this podcast connect with tej on facebook linkedin and youtube for more great content